everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of Proustian Paths, the podcast that takes you on a gentle walk through the text of a classic work of French literature, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. I am James Holden, and I'm your tour guide for this literary journey. Along the way, I'll be offering you a view of all the novel's key moments, so that if you're a first-time reader, you'll be able to see them from their best vantage points and experience their beauty. Or, if you're already a dedicated Proustian, you'll get a different perspective on the people and places you already know. In this episode, we begin the second leg of our literary journey. We'll begin our slow walk through the novel within the novel, which is called A Love of Swans, and which is in reality just a long middle section of In Search of Lost Time's first volume, The Way by Swans. Specifically, we'll be covering the passage from the beginning of this section, on page 191 of the English translation published by Penguin, up to the end of Swan's first visit to the Verderan Salon, which is on page 218. If you're reading along with the podcast but are using another translation, don't worry, this passage is very easy to find. Just read from the beginning of A Love of Swans until you get to the paragraph that begins, To Madame Verderan's great surprise, he never abandoned them. This section will find us in very different terrain to previous episodes. Whereas before, we were concerned with Combray, with the life of that provincial town, with the narrator's memories of his extended family, and with the two paths that led out from it. Now we'll be turning our focus to Paris, and its artistic and aristocratic salons, and with the lives of those that attend them. With this change in scenery comes the knowledge that we'll have to set aside those maps that we've been working on and have been using to guide ourselves so far. Instead, we'll have to draw new ones. We'll also be concerned with a whole new set of literary landmarks characters, plot points and artistic works that we can use to orientate ourselves as we advance along our very own way through Proust. So naturally enough, we'll begin the episode by taking note of all these. Then, as always, we'll be ready to take in the literary critical view. I'd ask that if you enjoy this podcast, please do consider subscribing to it wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Also, if you're able to leave a comment or review and leave a like for the episode, that'd be wonderful. It helps the show a lot, and will help encourage others onto this literary journey of ours. Unlike the Verderan Salon, we're always delighted to welcome newcomers onto this tour of ours. Also, please do join the conversation over on social media by searching for Proustian Paths. So with that said, we're off to a little soiree where we don't stand around on ceremony, and where we're certainly not bores. The Literary Map Over the first four episodes of this podcast, we've carefully mapped out a number of separate spaces. This was a little difficult to start with, as these were swirling around. Walls melted away and towns and houses came and went. However, the taste of the Madeleine cake led the narrator to show us the provincial town of Combray and its surrounding countryside. This eventually led us, last time, to map out the two footpaths that extend from the town the paths which will shape the mental geography of our narrator as he makes his way through the rest of his life, and which will also shape the textual geography of the search as we make our way through the long novel. We'll need the maps we drew of those spaces again later, so let's keep them safe. However, we need to set them aside for the time being, for, with the beginning of this new section, comes a new location. Now, suddenly, we're in Paris. Although in truth, the whole narrative takes place in Paris, to the extent that it is simply the written recollections of the elderly narrator. Also, we've been in Paris before, at Uncle Adolphe's house. Specifically this time, we're in the home of Monsieur and Madame Verderan, 
a space in which they host their own parties for their friends and extended circle. This is the so-called Little Set, Little Circle or Little Clan. The section we're dealing with today takes place almost exclusively in this space, with its assorted furniture, including the high Swedish chair of waxed pine on which Madame Verderan herself sits, a tapestry-covered couch, the Beauvais chair that Swan inspects, a piano, a card table, and the assorted gifts brought by visitors. This place is, in reality, only the first Verderan salon, and it would be worthwhile drawing up a decent inventory of its fixtures and fittings so that we might compare it to the house the couple eventually come to occupy on the coast in a later volume, a house the narrator himself will visit, and lastly, the house Madame Verderan will in time come to occupy in Paris in the last volume. The Verderan Salon isn't the only space into which we're invited in this section. We also see, somewhat fleetingly, Swan's own house through the framing of the visits of Odette de Cressy. Notably, we are also shown another salon in which, some time before Swan visited the Verderan house, he had heard the sonata by Van Toy. So we started our walk through Proust in a cloistered bedroom. We moved to seeing a town from a window, and then finally to walking along country paths lined with hawthorns and alongside a river. Now we find ourselves concerned with drawing rooms, collections, art and music, all under lamplight and the light of social expectation. There, we're surrounded by an entirely new cast of people. Literary Landmarks This literary landscape is populated with a whole new cast of characters and a whole new set of landmarks which we can use to orientate ourselves. There are the physical landmarks themselves, but more importantly, there are plot landmarks as well as social and artistic reference points that we need to spot. Marking these on our map now will, as always, help us to avoid tripping up on our way through the text as if on a paving slab in a courtyard. To begin with, there are the social reference points. We begin with the little clan itself, its composition and its relationship to the other salons of Paris, most notably the aristocratic salons of the Faubourg Saint-Germain, which Swann is also able to enter, unlike the Verderans at this stage. There's the opposition, established on the first page of this section, between the women who attend this salon, specifically Odette, and the Duchesse de Guermont, which is once again already a reiteration of the opposition between Swan's Way and the Guermont Way. There are the relationships between the members of the clan and the individual traits assigned to each. The gentle Sagnette, Dr. Cotard, with his absurd use of idioms, the painter, the pianist and his aunt, and so on. There's also the relationship between the Verderans themselves, which will later find a parallel in the relationship between the Duke and Duchesse de Guermont. There's Odette de Cressy, a woman we have encountered twice already, although we may not initially realise it. Her life, and her burgeoning relationship with Swan, facilitated by Madame Verderan. And then there's Madame Verderan herself, a wonderfully awful but fascinating character, with all her pretentiousness and barely disguised social ambition, for which she is willing to sacrifice her faithful, as well as Cotard's patience. There are also a number of artistic reference points, there's Van Toy's sonata for piano and violin, the andante from the piano transcription of which is performed in the Verderan Salon. Alongside the pianist, there's the clan's favourite painter, Monsieur Biche, who is painting a portrait of Dr. Cotard. 
This painter is a man who, although we cannot possibly know it yet, will go on to appear at length in the novel's second volume, and will play a significant part in the narrator's own artistic education. Beach's invitation to Swan, which is on page 206, explicitly anticipates the one later extended to the narrator out Balbeck. There's also Vermeer's painting, The View of Delft, a work that Proust himself had seen and about which Swan is writing a paper, or at least was writing a paper. As is clear from this list of landmarks, Proust greatly and very rapidly expands the geography and population of his novel in the opening section of part two. Keeping all these landmarks in view as we progress will ensure that we don't get lost on our way. The Literary Critical View We remarked in an earlier episode that the beginning of the second section of Part 1, Combray, felt like the beginning of the kind of coherent narrative with which we might be familiar. Suddenly the swirling location settled down and we were presented with the narrative that seemed to move forward sequentially, which offered a more linear chain of events, although analysis will reveal that this is only really an impression of narrative sequentiality. At the beginning of the novel within the novel, we move to something still more recognisably novel-like again. The style and pacing here appears initially to be much more conventional. The text is, as a result, much easier to read. It's filled with dialogue, and the action is seemingly outward, in the world, rather than inward or psychological. It is social, and the longer passages of analysis seem to have been put to one side. It's also funny. There are reasons why this section of the search is published independently of the rest of the text, and they are not solely concerned with its relatively self-contained plot. We could begin with the question, where are we? This would seem sensible. Consulting the map we drew a moment ago, we know we're in the Salons of Paris. Another question might be, when are we? As always, it's a question of time in In Search of Lost Time. In part one of The Way by Swans, we were concerned with the narrator's youth, or more accurately, with his memories of it as they returned to him later in life when he was slowly waking from his dreams, and as they returned to him in a flash after eating a madeleine cake dipped in tea. In the section we're beginning to read today, we're moving to a different point of time. The events being described took place, we learn on page 191, in, and I quote, that year. Yes, the narrator pinpoints the exact date of this episode to that year. In truth, we've been told that Swan's love affair took place before the narrator was born. He already said so on page 186 of the Penguin translation. And here again we are told, on page 197, that, quote, it was about the time of the narrator's birth that Swan's great love affair began. For the visitors to this salon, and for its hostess, the house is in reality a sort of church. We are told that they, quote, abide tacitly by a credo. We are told of the orthodoxy of the little church. Additionally, the visitors are also referred to as the faithful. We are told that Odette is an angel. If this salon is a kind of holy place, it is also one that demands attendance even on Easter and Christmas, in place of actual church. The relationships between the different members of the clan, 
and also between Swan and Odette, are explored in brilliantly cutting and amusing detail. They are shown through dialogue and gesture as much as description, in ways that reveal Proust's fine eye for detail and the subtleties of social interaction, something we'll get a lot more of in the later volumes and their extended social sins, for which this is the first model. The narrator's account of the developing relationship between Swan and Odette is the occasion for the first of many long digressions in the search on the nature of love and desire. There is, in short, a gap between what Swan finds beautiful and that to which he is attracted, and the narrator explores the mechanisms by which each of these operate, and the kind of psychological manoeuvres required to bring them into alignment, which involve going via art. Swan is here a model for the narrator again, and the love affair of Swan echoes throughout the search as a model for all of the narrator's interactions, first with Swan's own daughter Gilberte, and later with Albertine. Swan's love affairs are also shown to be related to power and class dynamics, again something which will play out throughout the search. The deployment of language as a power tool and social marker is clear in the social scenes at the Verdurans' house too. We can compare the account of Sagnette's unique pronunciation of words with that of the pianist's aunt. We are told that the former's lack of clarity revealed the, quote, quality of his soul, as it was devoid of all hardness, something that predisposes the reader to feel sympathy towards him as he experiences harsh treatment at the hands of the other members of the clan. The pianist's aunt, however, mispronounces words on purpose, we are told, so that her ignorance of grammar will not be noticed, the result of which is that her speech becomes strained and unusual. This is on page 207 of the Penguin translation. As well as being contrasted with each other, both act as foils to the easy social graces and loquacity of Swan and the chatting of the others. Part of Swan's social success on his initial visit to the Verderans is his ability to say the right thing and in the right way with ease, concerning the furniture, Odette, the society of others, etc. More generally still, expressions and language become a social marker in this scene, Cotard's interest in certain idioms is consistently painted as ridiculous. It's also part of the revelation detailed by the author that the doctor, quote, lacked the critical faculty which he thought he exercised on everything. That's on page 204. Again, this is to be compared to both Swan, the erudite man of culture, and the narrator himself. Art and music are important themes in this leg of our journey, both in terms of their aesthetic value, the effect that they produce on those that experience them, and also their social value as objects of prestige. We are also introduced to the ongoing theme of art criticism, this last through both Swan with his article on Vermeer, and by Madame Verderan and her exaggerated appreciation of Van Toy's Sonata, Wagner and the like. For Madame Verderan, a work's greatness can be measured in how much physical discomfort it causes her, how strong her migraine is the following day. The text continually juxtaposes this caricature response with that of both Swan and, by extension, to those of the narrator himself later in the book. Specifically, here we are shown in regard to the Vantoy Sonata that Madame Verderan, for all that she flaunts her knowledge and deep appreciation of the work, in reality knows very little about it she fails to recognise the little phrase with which Swan is obsessed. She is able to say very little else about the work either, or its history or composer. She says, I don't very much enjoy nitpicking or discussing fine points. We don't waste our time splitting hairs here. 
That's on pages 215 to 216. No matter how genuine or otherwise Madame Verdurin's actual response to the music, for her its greatest value is in her having discovered it, its social value and the prestige it offers, and in having it played for her. It's important that it's not popular. The playing of it allows her to define her salon. For Swan, the value of the work lies elsewhere, and his response is far more complex. He had, we are told, heard the work before, but had failed to discover who it was by, and had eventually come to forget it. He is thus shocked to find it again in the Verdurin Salon. His aesthetic response, and the time of his act of listening, if I can express it in those terms, is complex, and I have analysed it at length elsewhere. If you'd like to discover my reaction to that, you can find it in my critical memoir relating to Proust, In Search of Antoy, Music, Literature and a Self-Regained, which was published by Sussex Academic Press back in 2010. Swan's approach is different to Madame Verderand's. He does focus on the details of the music. Nevertheless, his approach is still affected by social status and perception. He exclaims that he knows someone called Van Toy, but that this work couldn't be composed by him. Of course, it is, as the reader is already well aware. For all Swan's social mobility, this reveals his social preconceptions. His approach to ask about the composer and his life can also be connected to the narrator's response to Bergotte and to Proust's own dispute with the position held by Saint-Beuve, which focuses on the artist's qualities as a way of evaluating and understanding their art. We've encountered this view on previous legs of our literary journey. It just remains for me to say thanks for joining me for this leg of our gentle literary walk. If you've enjoyed it, again, please do consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving me a review. Don't forget, you can connect with the show over on social media. Just search for Proustian Paths on Twitter and Instagram. You'll find a lot more related content for me over there, and we'll get updates on the release of future episodes. You can also send an email to proustianpaths at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. Finally, you can also visit the show's homepage, where you can get all the information about the podcast and relevant links culturalwriter.co.uk slash proustian-paths.html I hope you'll join me for the next leg of our journey along the way when we'll be travelling onwards just a short step from page 218 of the Penguin Translation to page 229.